Throughout the Old Testament, God is demonstrating that He will crush the serpent. That uh, opening promise in Genesis 3.15 that the, the enemy of God and His people will be crushed by, subdued by, a future son from Eve is fulfilled when the Lord Jesus comes. Now the fulfillment of the, of the Savior's victory over Christ, the serpent crusher himself being born in Bethlehem and living without sin and bearing our sins upon the cross and rising in victory from the dead, he has indeed overcome the evil one. And yet, there are those allied with the evil one in the Old Testament. We would call them the seed of the serpent. They're people whose words and whose actions demonstrate where their allegiance lies. You can indicate, in other words, um, malice against God's people and uh, conspiracy against the anointed one himself as being serpentine leading up to the defeat of the serpent. We see the seed of the serpent crushed throughout the Old Testament. Whenever the people of God have victory over the enemies of God, God is crushing the serpent. That's, that's the image that I think we're meant to see from Genesis 3 forward. All of this will culminate in the victory of Jesus. Tonight, when we remember what's happening in Deuteronomy 2 and in Deuteronomy 3, these are stories of the serpentine people being subdued. That God is gaining victory for himself in demonstrating power to subdue his enemies. God is crushing the seed of the serpent. We would identify the seed of the serpent in Deuteronomy 2 and 3 as the Amorite kings. The Amorite kings. To remind us of where we are, in the book of Deuteronomy, the Israelites are in approximately 1406 B.C., poised to enter the land of promise under Joshua, and Moses will be the last of that Exodus generation to die. He's giving them some final words, some final sermons this new generation that's grown up in the wilderness is going to inherit the land unlike their ancestors. Those ancestors were part of a disobedient generation. And one of Moses' goals is to remind the Israelites of what all they've gone through as a people. So that in remembering, they would have fresh incentive and motivation to trust the Lord, to turn from wickedness, and to um, hope in the promised land. That God will not make these promises in vain, but that they can conquer the land, conquest the land by His power. Part of what the past of Israel consisted of were some victories that would be good for them to remember. Think of it as like a down payment. How do we know, how should these Israelites know and be uh, confident that God is going to give them the promised land? Because prior to taking the land, they can remember victories that this passage talks about tonight. From Deuteronomy 2.16 through chapter 3.11, they can remember when God gave them victory over two Amorite kings named Sihon and Og. Sihon and Og. Those are amazing names. I love those names. Kings, not so great people. But nevertheless, their names very memorable. Sihon and Og and their, the victories of the Israelites over them. The subduing of the seed of the serpent. Now the setup to these battles, the setup to the remembrance about these battles, is in verses 16 to 23, where the Israelites are being told, I want you to leave the Ammonites alone. And then when you go against Sihon, and later when you go against Og, you're going to just demolish them. You're going to subdue them and overcome them. But the Ammonites are not part of the people you're to subdue. 
Last time we were together, we remembered that in the Israelite, um, in the Israelite map of the ancient world, they were to subdue the land of Canaan, and that did not include Edom, which was the, these were the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. So there was a, a, a relation to Abraham. They were not to subdue the Moabites. Moab was a son of Lot, and Lot was Abraham's nephew. So there's some connection to Abraham as well. And then over in this area, which uh, we can see a little bit better here, you have Ammon, and the Ammonites were descendants of Lot's second son, Ben-Ami. So there is, in each of the cases of Edom and Moab and Ammon, some kind of old ancient connection to Abraham. It's the non-Abrahamic peoples, namely in Canaan and these Amorite kings tonight, that the Israelites were to overcome. But first, they were to pass by Ammon. They were to leave the Ammonites alone. Let's look at this remembering to leave the Ammonites alone. Verses 16 to 23. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, that's a reference to the old generation. The generation of the men of war that had been counted in Numbers 1 and had died by the time the second census was given in Numbers 26. This was a new generation now that had arisen. So that previous men of war generation had perished. The Lord said to me in verse 17 and in verse 18, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. Which indicates that these Israelites down in this area, they're going to cross the border of Moab and head north where Ammon is going to be and where some Amorite territory is going to be. And they need to keep it clear. You're going to subdue the Amorites. You're going to leave the Ammonites alone. He says in verse 19, when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, don't harass them or contend with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession because I've given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. And that requires us to remember the Genesis 19 background. I I reiterated a bit of that a moment ago. But the Ammonites were descendants of Lot's second-born son. The Moabites were descendants of Lot's first-born son, Edom. The Edomites were descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. So there's this association with the Abrahamic families. And if there's descendants of Abraham's family in some sense living in this area, the Israelites are not to defeat them. That doesn't mean their relationship is going to be great. Even when they wanted to pass through Edom, the Edomites were like, no. So, I mean, that's disconcerting. You wish the relations were improved, but nevertheless, the Ammonites were not going to be in the target zone. Now, that's verses 16 through 19. And then your Bible probably opens with a parenthesis. Uh, this is a translator's judgment to say this is not the main point, but it's, a, it's an aside that verses 20 through 23 Uh, give you. And then the narrative is going to pick up with remembering that victory over Sihon. So by bringing up the Ammonites, they're bringing up them because the Ammonites dwell east of Sihon's territory. They're going to be very careful then. It's not like they say, all right, go ahead and defeat King Sihon. And you know, if the Ammonites get wiped out in the process, well, you know, collateral damage. No, that's not the way this is reasoned at all. Instead, we find out in Deuteronomy chapter 2, the Ammonites were not part of the target of Israelites dispossessing of peoples. What we find out in this uh, parenthetical comment is interesting, though, because we're told in verse 20, it, the people of Ammon, it is also counted as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there. 
Now, the Rephaim were ancient warriors that were typically known to have great size that might be exemplified by later on the man Goliath of Gath among the Philistines. So these were intimidating, fierce ancient warriors. The Rephaim lived once in Ammon. The Ammonites called them a different name. It says they called them the Zamzumim, okay? They're just telling you that. That's for, you know, you don't have to know that, but they're just telling you this is what we call them. Other people call them Rephaim. We call them the Zamzumim. It's all about the same, same. In verse 21, they were a people great and many and tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, meaning in, in their presence, giving them, these Ammonites, giving the Ammonites the land. The Ammonites dispossessed them and settled in their place. And God did this for them. God gave the descendants of Lot through Lot's second son, Ben-Ami, the land that is now called Ammon. Previous people were there. They were subdued by the Ammonites. And God did this for the Ammonites in verse 22, just as he did for the people of Esau who live in Seir. And that's a reference to these Edomites who live in this area, Mount Seir. Seir is a, uh, just a catch word for Edom. So the Edomites... People previously lived there called the Horites, but God destroyed the Horites before them and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. Here's what we're finding out. The people in this land who are the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites who are about over in this area, they were not original to the land. Rather, there were people that they dispossessed, that God seemed to be pleased to raise up the Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites to effectively bring judgment on these Rephaim, these mighty ancient warriors. Now, that's not the only part of the parenthetical reference. There's one more verse, isn't there? Verse 23. As for the Avi'im, who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftarim, who came from Kaftar, destroyed them and settled in their place. That's a reference to this area in the southwest part of uh, the promised land. In the southwest part of promised land, as far as Gaza, there were people who used to live there and they were conquered by the Kaftarim. We know the Kaftarim by the other name, the Philistines. So the Philistines is the equivalent word to the people who originally lived here, which means where the Philistines dwell, where the Edomites dwell, where the Moabites dwell, where the Ammonites dwell, they all had previous people in those places. That parenthetical comment wants you to know that. And the reason the parenthetical comment brings that up isn't because that's the main part of the story. It's to say, when you pass by the land of Ammon, remember God gave that land to those people. So you leave it alone. Because the people who previously dwelled there, God gave them into the hand of the Ammonites. And he did that for the Edomites, and he did that for the Moabites, and he did that for those that were now known as the Philistine areas who now operate in that land. I think this speaks to the sovereignty of God over the nations. It's not because the Moabites were in the Sinai Covenant. It's not because the Philistines were in the Sinai Covenant. But this little parenthetical comment is coherent with a larger claim that the book of Daniel makes. And that is that God determines the seasons and times and reigns of kings and empires. That the Moabites are not sovereign over the world. And even the allotted territory where they dwell exists under the sovereignty of the God of the nations. 
the Israelites are going to pass by this land of Ammon and they're to remember that even though the Ammonites are not Israelites, the Ammonites dwell where they do because God is sovereign. And they are not to take that lightly. So this is a parenthetical comment, but it does make some important land observations. That's why the last few minutes we're uh, expanding a bit on that. But back to what happens after that parenthesis closes. He's trying to get us to remember to leave the Ammonites alone and the two victories that follow nearby. Now, the first victory is the defeat of King Sihon. Let's pick up in verse 24. He says, rise up, you'll remember we told you. Rise up. The Lord had said, rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So what we are looking at in this green highlighted part is they're going to cross the Arnon, which is the Arnon River, and they're going to be going into Sihon's territory. And they're to subdue him. And the language matters because it's a contrast of what they were told about the Ammonites. They were told, don't contend with the Ammonites. You are to contend with King Sihon. Now, it's not because the the, uh, Israelites are so mighty. I think we can imagine that the Sihon army are where they are and have subdued earlier Moabite territory that the book of Numbers tells us about because the Sihon army is mighty. So when the Israelites go up to them, notice it says in verse 24, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite. So why is it that Sihon's regime is now going to fall to Israel? Because God has decreed it. That's why. I have given him into your hand. And there's nothing Sihon can do about that. Rage as he might, muster up all the allies that he might be able to accrue. If God has given him into the hand of the Israelites, it's as good as done. This is a promise, therefore, in verse 24. The battle has not yet happened. Now, I'm talking about when they were remembering this. They were remembering that at the time, the battle had not yet happened. And when that promise was given, it was to say, I've given him into your hand so you can go forward in trust. You don't, you, you don't need to say, but, but look at us and look at them. And, you know, when you compare here these uh, armies and their resources and our weapons and our counted men, and he says, I've given him into your hand, this king of Heshbon. So Heshbon, this area here, is likely the capital of this area. And so Sihon's territory is here, and it goes from about the Arnon to this Jabbok River. And, and this is King Sihon's territory. And you might say, why is this highlighted up here? Because north of Sihon was Og. We'll get to him in just a moment. So the, the whole green is telling you what they defeated, starting in the south and moving northward. And interestingly, this is going to be their progress in the Promised Land. When they cross the Jordan, they're going to start southward, and they're going to move northward. And they're going to conquest the land and God is preparing them for it. This is like a down payment of previous victories now guaranteeing the full harvest of inheritance. And he says in verse 25, here's what I'm going to do. They're remembering this, right? This is not a battle happening in Deuteronomy 2. They're remembering this battle. He says, you remember, I I told you I'm going to begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven. 
What they need are the people in the land of Canaan to turn from their rebellion and to submit to Yahweh. To put down their idols and to put aside their weapons of warfare and to not engage the Israelites with hostility. When you get to Joshua, in Joshua chapter 2, you know what Rahab says? Rahab says, we have all heard what God has done. We heard that Yahweh did what he did to the Egyptians. That has reached our land. And that your God is the God of heaven and earth. That needs to be the confession of the peoples. That they not live in a rebellion against the true living God. And so in verse 25, he says, What I'm doing now is going to send ripple effects into the land of Canaan. And Lord willing, there would be many who would join Rahab to say, Your God is the living God. And we're going to obey Him. And we're going to turn from what doesn't save. And we're going to turn from our wickedness. And we're going to submit to His good and wise rule. I'm going to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples under the whole heaven. And they will tremble at the report of you and be in anguish because of you. Now, there will be some Canaanites, whether they're in Jericho or elsewhere, who are going to double down. And who are going to say, we will not turn aside from our plans, our gods, and our warfare. Come on, Israelites, we'll destroy you. And then they will be given into the hand of Yahweh's people. In verse 26, Moses says, so here's what I did. I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemot, which is apparently in, in some area here. This is with a question mark. Nobody quite knows precisely where Kedemot is, but it's, it's in this area where the Israelites had been. And he says, I'm going to send messengers. It's like a base of operations. I'm going to send some messengers, and they're going to go to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace. So it starts out this way. And what I, what I want you to consider is how much of the Exodus background is in view. Because even when Moses first goes to Pharaoh, Moses, Moses has indications because of Pharaoh's hostility that this is probably not going to go the way the people wish that it would. But Moses nevertheless says, let my people go, God says, that they might worship me in the wilderness. Now Pharaoh is resistant, but just like Moses, here you have uh, just like Moses in Exodus, here you have Moses saying, I'm going to send messengers. And in verse 27, here's what we're telling him. Let me pass through your land. I'll only go by the road. I'll turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You'll sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Let me pass through on foot. As the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me. Until I go over the Jordan into the land the Lord our God is giving to us. Now what verses 27 through 29 seem to indicate is Moses is not coming initially ready to throw the gauntlet down. Okay, that's not exactly how his words come across. He's coming quite peaceable. And willing to hear the response of Sihon. Even though Yahweh has said, I have given Sihon into your hand. Moses does not come with that as the first words on his lips. He instead is saying, can we pass through here? Can we buy food from you? After all, this has happened with previous places we passed by, whether it was the Edomites or whether it was Moabites. You know, we needed resources and they were willing to do that. This seems to be a litmus test. And this is going to draw out from Sihon 
the, the antagonism and hostility of the seed of the serpent. It's going to expose him. It's going to reveal what sort of person he's like. Because at this point, Moses is not even saying, give us your land. Okay, He's not saying we're coming here and you need to submit to, to Yahweh. He's not even saying we're here to conquest this part of the land and we're going to cross the Jordan and God's got an inheritance for us. He doesn't say any of that fully. He simply says, can we talk about food and water? Sihon is so wicked and so hostile that it tells us in verse 30, but Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate. Talk about an Exodus background. All right, we've already brought up the book of Exodus. And when you think about a ruler of a people having his heart hardened, you automatically think about Pharaoh and you realize that the hostility here has been reinforced in the direction it's on. It's not because Sihon wanted to bring the Israelites food and water and God made him will differently. We should see hardness of heart language as the direction of the person's heart and desires that God is now sovereignly going to use for his purposes, hardening the direction already in progress. Sihon is wicked. Sihon does not want to let them pass. And the explanation here is a divine sovereign work hardening the spirit of, of Sihon. His heart is now more obstinate. And this is that he might give Sihon into your hand as he is to this day. Verse 31, And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. The will of God is Sihon's judgment. And that means Sihon is not going to repent. His spirit has been hardened that his wicked state might meet the justice of God. And one of the means God, by which God brings justice is through other image bearers. And here the Israelites are the means of divine judgment. That through the Israelites in the land of Sihon, Sihon and his wicked regime will fall. And God says it's already happening in verse 30. Or verse 31, I've already begun to give his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy it. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And, or, yeah, Jahaz. And uh, there is some, uh, some dispute. Well, you know, Jahaz with a question mark here may be there. I pointed to Jazer first because my eyes can't see well. Uh, here we have Jahaz. This is the area. They've gone a little bit into uh, the land of Sihon. And already Sihon is coming out for battle. Moses' opening words were, can we pass through and get food and drink? And Sihon is ready to muster an army. This demonstrates the recal uh, recalcitrance in his heart and his unrepentant spirit. And now hardened by Yahweh, he is going to be given sovereignly over by Yahweh to judge for judgment. In verse 33, and the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. This is very strong and broad language. It's a way of saying we subdued the Amorite army and we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women and children. We left no survivors. Now, this kind of language is found also in the book of Joshua, and it bears some explanation because it's quite strong. But in the ancient Near East, Old Testament interpreters can recognize 
people besides Israel write about their victories. So if you go into ancient documents of warfare and military conquests, you can find other ancient people saying, we invaded, we left no survivor, we conquered everything. And that that is understood in military writing to be hyperbole. It's a way of speaking with every group in the land saying, we thoroughly, comprehensively subdued. When outside of those documents, there remained citizens alive, there remained cities and villages that were habitable. In fact, we know that this is the case because in the book of Joshua, when it tells us they went into this land and there was no survivor, that's military conquest language that we see later in the book of Joshua. There were Canaanites that were still in those areas. And so this needs to be taken, I think, with an understanding about the way writing about conquests sounded. And this is not meant to say, in an overly literal way, that we went there and there wasn't a single individual left breathing. There was actually no survivor. When it says they left no survivors and we devoted everything to destruction, that's similar to how in the book of Joshua, it's then followed by their engagements of the Canaanites that remained. So when you look at the book of Joshua, you have to deal with these statements where they say we, we conquered everyone and we destroyed everything. And then you read later on in these passages, that did not happen historically with every individual. It's a way of talking about subduing and conquesting the area. That's how I take this story in Numbers 2.34. That we went into the land of Sihon, and anybody that was against us, we conquered. And there was no ability for them to overcome us. Only the livestock, in verse 35, we took as spoil for ourselves. Which means they, they didn't take the spoils of war besides livestock. The plunder of the cities that we captured. It did not include people, it included the animals and any plunder of the cities. So this is the defeat of King Sihon, Sihon, the Amorite king in this area, the king of Heshbon. From Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. That is an all-encompassing statement. Here is Aroer, here in the south, all the way up to the border where Gilead is, this Jabbok River. This is the area just referred to by verse 36. Verse 36 is a long way of saying, from the southern border to the northern border, we took Sihon's land. That's the point. That's the point. Seeing it on a map helps me a lot. Hopefully it's useful for you as well. This would make a lot less sense in my mind if I didn't have those pictures. So in verse 36, he says, there was not a city too high for us. Now, that could be taken on a number of ways, in a couple of different ways. I don't think you have to pick between them. Namely, that in the ancient world, building something on upraised territory was common because they believed that elevated regions could be contact points between earth and the gods. So they wanted to ascend. They had high places in First and Second Kings, and they would build idol places on these high places. And these cities, there may be villages and cities that were in upraised areas because of the idol instincts that people had. And this is to say we had victory over those places. A city too high might also indicate the fortresses and the way of trying to gate around the city. Any way to keep people out, there was no height to guard the city that we could not overcome. There was no city too high, either with its fortress-like construction 
or its elevated territory. Verse 36 says, the Lord our God has given all into our hands. In verse 37, only to the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near. That is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us, they did not draw near to the land of Ammon. That's exactly what the Lord had forbidden them to do, and they followed his instruction, and they let the Ammonites alone. What they're doing is is getting this motivating speech from Moses by rehearsing the great deeds of God. King Sihon was a mighty Amorite king. And God gave him into their hands. And you know what this means? If God can give King Sihon the Amorite into the hand of the Israelites, then all of Canaan will go to the Israelites because of the previous down payment. Think of it that way. They can trust the Lord because of what He has done. He has shown His trustworthiness to fulfill what He's promised to do. And He's promised the land of Canaan. Now, the other victory that they're to remember is in verses 1 to 11, the defeat of King Og. This is going to take them north of the Jabbok River to this land, Bashan, the king of Bashan named Og. Here's what uh, verse 1 says. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Idrei. And Idrei, likely about here... When they are traveling up this area, Idrei is likely an important place of administration for Og's regime. And therefore, Og would be present, his mighty army would be present, probably the best or most elite of his soldiers right there in that important location. He brings out his army. But then verse 2, But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him. For I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. They are to remember what God just did south of the Jabbok River. He's going to do north of the Jabbok River because he's got jurisdiction on both sides. It turns out that the God who said over here in Sihon's territory, I'm going to give this to you. He can say it of Og's territory. And you know what Og can do about it? Well, nothing. He can't do anything because Og is not sovereign even over his own land. In verse 3, So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left. Similar language, right? Similar language that sounds comprehensive in total. It's meant to leave the military impression like other ancient Near Eastern victory documents. We went in and the victory was ours. In verse 4, he says, we took all his cities at that time. There wasn't a city we didn't take. So he says it twice. We took all their cities. Let me put it another way. There wasn't a city we didn't take. Sixty cities, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. Sixty cities. Now, when you think city, don't think like Louisville city. You know, don't think more than a million people. We're thinking about cities in the ancient world may have had thousands. If they were more like villages or towns, it would have been hundreds. It's still a grand number of cities. We're talking about 60 cities. Okay, so that's not nothing. 
but, but don't think millions and millions and millions. That, that would be the wrong impression. Cities, we have to think about it in an ancient Near Eastern sense. He says in verse 5, all these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, bars, besides very many unwalled villages. So there were both walled and unwalled places, which means uh, some of these cities were easier to enter and overcome than others. Those with walls, more difficult. Jericho would be an example of that in the, in the land of Canaan, right? Uh, those walls seem to be a problem. But there were also unwalled villages. There were some villages with gates and bars. Whatever the cities try to fortify themselves with, God is greater than all of their fortifications. In verse 6, and we devoted them to destruction. As we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. This language about total conquest reminds us of the corporate identity of the ancient world that was operating at the time. The, the idea was, you're not just an individual, you're part of a, a group. You've got people that you belong to, a society that is yours, a community that is yours. And so when Sihon or when Og come against, comes against uh, the Israelites, there is not just an individual King Og subduing or subduing of King Sihon, but the community around, the corporate reality of these peoples, the seed of the serpent overcome by the seed of the woman. In verse 7, but all the livestock and spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. Doesn't that sound like Sihon's land as well that was conquered? So in verse 8, we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. That's a way of saying east of the Jordan. Beyond the Jordan means east of it. From the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. So now it's making the largest scope statement so far. The Arnon, the valley of the Arnon is here, all the way up, let me see if I can get us up here, to Mount Hermon. Here's a black and white map, not as pretty as the one we were on, but at least it shows here the valley of the Arnon all the way up to Mount Hermon. This is King Bashan's area and Sihon's area. This was overcome. And there would be future Israelites who would dwell in this area. Fast forwarding for a moment. In the book of Joshua, we learn that the tribes of Reuben and Gad desire to dwell in the land that formerly belonged to Sihon. So when the Israelites conquer King Sihon, two of those tribes are later going to dwell in that territory. And north of the Jabbok River, you've got the, the land of Bashan, where Og reigned. Half the tribe of Manasseh is going to dwell there, east of the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee. So in the book of Joshua, these lands are not forgotten. Some of these tribes desire to go and live there, much to Moses' consternation at the time in the book of Numbers, but Deuteronomy is reminding us about those victories. So in verse 8, we took the land out of the hand of these two Amorite kings. Now it tells us about Mount Hermon here in verse 9. My translation, the ESV, has it in parentheses, and that's because it's telling you we're using the term Hermon what we conquered up to might go by a different name elsewhere. So he says in verse 9, the Sidonians call Hermon Sirion, while the Amorites call it Sinir. It's a way of saying this place that was the border of our conquering territory on the eastern side, we call it Hermon. It goes by other names, but we're all talking about the same place. So sometimes these parenthetical remarks 
it makes us aware that someone who lives in another area calls it something different. Well, this happens all the time, doesn't it? I mean, just to use a silly example, if you go to certain parts of the land and someone says, do you want a soda pop or do you want a Coke or do you want some soft drink or do you want... And then you get these different options that can be really regional expressions of, of popping something up and then, uh, and then you might call it something else yourself and you know what they're referring to. It's just the different ways of talking about the same thing. In verse 10, the area of uh, our conquering included all the cities of the tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Salakah and Adrei, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. So we have uh, an estimation of Salakah there and Adrei. These were probably important administrative cities. He says we, we have them. In other words, the reason why some of these particular villages are probably mentioned or, or cities mentioned is because of their importance. And he's saying they fell to us. We conquered these important places. Gilead is a reference to this region. You see it uh, actually written vertically here rather than horizontally. But written vertically is this area of Gilead, formerly belonging to King uh, Og of Bashan. We conquered all of these cities. But something you need to know about Og in verse 11 is for only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. So when we conquered Og, here was something to know about him. Og was a giant warrior. He was a king of extraordinary size and height. In verse 11, it tells us he was from the Rephaim, which is that reference that we heard about earlier with the Ammonites, right? The Ammonites called them the Zamzumim, but the Edomites and others previously, they had people, the Moabites as well, that they had to deal with previously known as the Rephaim. And they were intimidating mighty warriors. Og was one. In verse 11, we're told something about his iron bed. This is an odd detail on the face of it. Okay, I'll grant you that. Why do we need to know anything about Og's bed? So that you will know that the dimensions of Og's bed are not normal. Okay, so that when you see these descriptions here in cubits, and I'll translate them into feet in just a moment, you will recognize this is not normal. This demonstrates with what they were able to have here and then put on display that Og was a gigantic warrior. In verse 11, Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Here's what I think this means, friends. Og's bed, if it was in Idrei, the one of the capital cities and places of administration, the Ammonites end up with this iron bed in what you might consider a kind of display, public display, like... Here is where this mighty warrior once... Now, the only reason they got his bed is because there's no more Og. Like, in other words, it is a symbol of his demise. Now, I don't know how many museums there were in Ammon, but I tell you one thing they definitely had in their local museum was his bed. They had Og's iron bed, and its length was nine cubits, 13 and a half feet long. I'm six foot one. This is more than two of me tall. Okay? Nine cubits was its length. Thirteen and a half feet. Four cubits was its breadth. That is six feet wide. Thirteen and a half feet by six feet. Now, an iron bed of those dimensions would mean that Og's dimensions would be slightly less than that. 
we wouldn't want him going over the sides or his feet extending beyond the iron bed. Likely this iron bed was specially constructed. Not even likely it would have been. You're not finding this. This is not like normal dimensions. You've got you to get this custom made. Okay? So you, you're getting this custom made bed. And it's going to be so that Og fits in it. So here are the dimensions of the bed indicating how fearsome and intimidating this king of Bashan was. It makes you think in some sense of mighty Goliath brought down by young David in 1 Samuel 17. That this mighty warrior that others would look to and say, there's no way we're going up to him. We can't defeat him. But you see, David knows the stories that God brings down giants. God subdues what seems too great and mighty for mere human power to overcome. The Israelites, long before David arrives, the Israelites have stories of Sihon and Og's defeat. And Og was one of the Rephaim. God overcomes the giants. God subdues the mighty military peoples and powers of the Transjordan area, the eastern side of the Jordan. So you know what this means. If God has done this, then we can cross the Jordan River and we can trust Him to keep every one of His promises. He's not short of power. His jurisdiction isn't limited. It turns out that no matter what side of whatever river or what side of whatever um, a particular area of the land, eastern or western, northern or southern, God's sovereign jurisdiction raises up and brings down according to His sovereign will. The Israelites, therefore, need to walk by faith. Because their ancestors came up to the land. And you know what the report was in Numbers 13? The people there are so great. And even the sons of Anak, the Nephilim, were spotted. These mighty warriors that are in the land. The people in Numbers 13 and 14 gave in the majority a bad report. They talked about the fierce cities and the mighty fortresses and the great warriors. And the people in Numbers 13 and 14 said, so there's no way we can take that land. And so in Deuteronomy 2 and Deuteronomy 3, verses 1 to 11, God says, don't you remember how before we ever crossed this river, there were victories God gave to you where there were mighty warriors, intimidating fortresses, and even a giant. And I brought them down and gave them into your hand. So don't be like the wilderness generation. They thought my power was only so great. They thought my promises wouldn't be able to rival those inhabitants of the land of Canaan. I am God, the God of heaven and earth. Remember these victories. They are but a taste of what is to come. One of the ways why I think we can be encouraged by remembering these victories is because the Lord God Almighty has done great things through His Son, bringing both the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. And there are remaining promises of subduing death and bringing about the judgment of the wicked and new creation. And what I want you to know, friends, is God has done through His Son something greater than Og and Sihon being given into the hands of the Amorites. And if God has done what He has done in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and brought Him back from the dead, and He has the name above every name, and reigns in heaven and earth, then we can face Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. In other words, we can walk by faith, 
Trusting that God will not allow any of His words or any of His promises to fall in vain because we remember the great work of God. And they were remembering God's mighty deeds. And those mighty deeds, they were impressive, but not compared to what He would do with the Lord Jesus. Not compared to what Jesus would do in the southern part of the promised land, in the northern part of the promised land. Not compared to what He would do on the Sea of Galilee and crossing even into Gentile territory. Compared to His miracles, His signs, His deeds, where He made the deaf hear and the blind see, where He brought dead people back to life, and He drove out demonic spirits. Oh, Sihon and Og have nothing on the might and grandeur of the Lord Jesus when He was in the promised land ministering. And if He has done these great things, then in remembering the victories of God on our behalf, we can trust Him. And we can follow Him with faithfulness. We can follow Him with perseverance because we know if He has done what He has said He has, going, he has uh, promised to do in His Son, and He has also promised to deliver us from death and to make all things new, then the God who has shown His faithfulness will have further faithfulness to demonstrate still, and we can believe He will do it. Let's pray. Our Father, as we remember these victories tonight and recall with the book of Deuteronomy what these Israelites needed to remember that you had accomplished in their midst, we pray that the good gospel news of our victorious Savior who has defeated death, who has subdued the giants of sin in the grave, who has overcome all that is needed for us that we might walk in new life, and press toward new hope and new heavens and new earth, a new creation. Lord, He has done these mighty things. He has gone before us and paved the way. He has risen from the grave in bodily glory. I pray that you will stir our hope and that in remembering these stories, we would rejoice in your promises that have been kept and hope in your promises yet to be fulfilled. That you are faithful, great is thy faithfulness. That is our confession. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.